0: Okay, so welcome back to Cracks in Postmodernity. I am here today with Chris Arnati, who I first discovered through his book Dignity, which came out, is it two years ago now? Is it 29 years ago? ago. Okay, so Chris, you have an interesting background um, that's quite different from uh, what you ended up doing later on in life. So tell us how you started, what kind of work you were doing.
1: Yeah, um, I initially I, um, I got a PhD in physics, so I went straight from a math program to a PhD in physics, um, theoretical physics, and, uh, and after that I went to Wall Street where I was a trader. So um, if you've ever read Liar's Poker, which I don't know if many young people know about anymore, Michael Lewis's first book was about Solomon Brothers, Bond Traders on Solomon Brothers, and that was me um or if you've seen the big short is another um example of kind of a movie version of what i did and they're they're pretty close to close to what i did so for 20 years i was a bond trader um and then 2012 um almost 10 years ago wow um i i left my job to focus on what i do now which i guess is photography and writing or pop ethnography or photojournalism of, of some variety um um, focusing primarily on, um, I spent basically three years in uh, the poorest neighborhood in New York City, Hunts Point, um, f- um, with, a, with a street family of about maybe a group of 40 to 50 um, heroin addicts, homeless heroin addicts. And I spent three years um, kind of documenting their, their life. Um, and then after that, I um, <clears throat> did the same sort of thing across the country um I, I didn't spend three years in any one place i spent maybe a week and two weeks in different places all across the country um i put 400,000 miles on 350,000 miles on my van driving around the united states going to various communities that were either you know kind of like Hunt, hunt's point that gets a bad that they're kind of when they're talked about if it talked about at all is in a negative light um places that i mean they have been kind of summarize as forgotten America or what have you. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I turned that uh, that set of interviews and, um, um, and experiences into the book Dignity.
0: So you left behind a very lucrative career to just go and travel around the country and visit these kind of, as we could say, these forgotten parts, these parts that are not really given much importance. Um, why, why would you leave all that behind just to go travel and see these places?
1: Um, I think at a, a, a large percentage of what, I mean, a, a, I can justify it in multiple different ways but ultimately it's what I wanted to do. I mean, it was, I was always happier doing what I do now than I was on Wall Street. Um, you know, Kind of the arc of my, my, my career, the three big careers from a particle physicist to a bond trader to I guess um, documenting poverty um, it is kind of three, each step is me getting further away from kind of numbers and kind of a very quantitative way of looking at the world and moving towards a more qualitative way of looking you know, basically talking to people, um, you know, instead of sitting behind a wall of computers and kind of analyzing things that way and thinking, through, thinking about the world through a very kind of removed framework, literally removed, you know, mm-hmm. in a, in, on a 40th floor of a building with, you know. 16 screens in front of me, flashing numbers from there to kind of actually talking to people in crack houses at three in the morning. And, uh, you know, it was at a very selfish level. It's just, you know, I've always been interested in learning. It was a different way of learning. And I was learning from talking to people and my, that kind of wall street way of, of thinking and that kind of particle physics way of thinking, and which is, I call, you know, the kind of a very kind of Utilitarian positivist framework of of the world um, was just you know was I was starting to question it and uh, um, you know going out quote into the field as it were and talking to people was a way of kind of addressing that kind of questioning. Um, but you know, I, again, I, again to be kind of clicheous, I mean, you only live once, you might as well try do different things. So, <laughs> you know. Um, I've never really felt comfortable only doing one thing. Um, I I get to a certain point and it's time to move on. And then there was a political side, which is I was just becoming frustrated with Wall Street. Um, The the industry had changed. I had changed. I wasn't comfortable doing what I was doing um, at at a moral level or intellectual level. So um, I moved on from that. And one of the
0: things that you said is that like, you always saw yourself as someone who advocated for the rights of the underprivileged, the words, who were in need, but then your point of view kind of changed after actually spending time with these people you said you advocated for. So like, what was it that changed your perspective? How did it change after being with these people?
1: Again, I mean, I, I think anytime you think about a group of people and your only perspective on them is reading books or, or, or looking at data, as was the case, or you know, reading publications through the filter through the eyes of somebody else, um, it's very limited, and it, it generally comes in a very cartoonish um, framework. And you know, what what I came to see was a much more nuanced view, and I mean, it completely changed my view on 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 on, 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 on so many issues. The you know, the, the six or seven years of spending there, I'm an entirely different person in terms of how I think about things. Um, you know, I. I I, you know, you can kind of hear it in my voice now how I frame the old me, but my, you know, I, I I have a much less respect for kind of the scientific, you know, a very kind of cold technocratic rational way of looking at the world. And, 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 you know, at a very personal level, I I have a lot more respect for faith, I have a lot more respect for a more nuanced view on, on, on the world, um. And, uh, you know, in terms of the actual people I spent time with, you know, quote, the normies, you know, uh, I've come to reckon, I mean, it, it's, you know, again, it's another cliche, but they are kind of, they're 98% of the people, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, we're the weird ones, um, and, you know, the, the, the people I was spending my time with in the past, both in particle physics, both on Wall Street, um, and even, you know, when I was posting on Twitter, talking to, arguing with people about politics, we're the weird ones. We're the, we're the kind of odd characters who have to explain ourselves to the other 98%. You know, I, I feel awkward kind of explaining normies to the weird people. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're the ones who have an obligation in some sense to explain ourselves to the yeah. other, to, to, to the normies. Um, um, and so, you know, it's, 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 I've always knew I was weird and I always knew I was different, but it was, it was a, recognition of um you know um recognizing that um even what i wanted the normies to believe what i hope they believe wasn't necessarily what they believe and this you know that puts me in a very you know there's two paths you can go there you can become very much an elitist and say well okay you know um they need to be taught um you know they don't believe it Damn them. Uh, I'm better, you know. I I have I have more stuff I need taught. Or you can go the path of saying, hey, maybe I'm the wrong, maybe I'm the one who's who's got it wrong. Maybe what they believe, even though it isn't necessarily um, my cup of tea is is has more 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 weight behind it than I've given it before. So um I, I've generally taken the latter path, um, which is to question what I believe and to question what we quote. The weirdos the two percent the elites i call them the front row the highly educated believe um and so that hasn't always gone over well with you know with people you know with with people in that two percent the front row front row doesn't like to be particularly told that it's weird
0: yeah i mean i think the whole the categories of the front row back row it's helpful because it kind of transcends the conventional categories we use, like socioeconomic status, race, and all that. Because, you know, you can be front row coming from a particular racial so socioeconomic background. Um, that's not that's not typically associated with those who are privileged, you know, like you can be a person of color, a woman coming from an impoverished background, but who kind of approaches the world with this front row
1: mentality. I mean, the perfect example of that you know, I mean, kind of my thesis, you know, the kind of my cartoonish thesis that came out of the seven years was education is our biggest divide. Um, I kind of got, you know, I got, I got attacked pretty heavily, you know, when I started saying that in 2015. I think there's a lot, you know, the dialogue has moved kind of in that direction now where I think a lot more people are, are aware and I think they certainly saw that in the last election, that education is becoming more and more of a, a kind of a dividing line that people are willing to talk about in the same way they talk about the, uh, the, other, the classic dividing lines of race and gender and, um, and income. I mean, all three of those other ones are dividing lines as well. I don't want to like, downplay the differences that, you know, I'm not going to say that we don't have racial differences in the country or, or wealth differences, and they often overlap. I mean, a perfect example of, you know, is, is Elizabeth Warren. I mean, she's about as goddamn front row as you can get. And she has an immense privilege and she doesn't, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't posture as that. She's just, you know, a working girl from Oklahoma who um, oh, shocks doesn't make all that much money and is fighting for the, you know, fighting for the, fighting for the, um, you know, for the, for the regular person. And yeah, you know, she's <laughs> every, way, her entire worldview and her entire persona is extraordinary front row. I mean, you know, she's she's a Harvard law professor and, you know, yes, she comes from humble roots. Um, and, uh, but, you know, that was 40, 50 years ago and she's been spending all her time and whether she, you know and she didn't intend to become this person necessarily. You know, you spend that much time in a, a culture it changes who you are. And so I think she, you know and you, you can go on and on. There's plenty of others, you know, people who, uh, who kind of, who very much, you know, would say to themselves, "Hey, look at me! I'm. Uh, how can I be privileged? You know, I, I'm the following." And you know, I, I used to say that, kind of provocatively, intentionally provocatively, is a you know, an African American professor of sociology at at Cornell, you know, is is closer to a white bond trader than they are to you know, uh, a white truck driver or or a black kid flipping hamburgers in Detroit you know, um, because the black sociology professor at Cornell and the bond trader have more in common in their worldview than than somebody who, who hasn't finished high school or somebody who hasn't gone into college. I mean, you know, so I, I think education is very much, you know, and that was kind of with a, with a big reveal to me. And I kind of only knew, it, but like there is, I can remember exactly where I was when I actually said, wow, you know, I was in a, a McDonald's in Bristol, Tennessee of all places when I was just like, you know, I would see these things out in the quote country hanging with normies. And then I get on Twitter and see people fighting. And I'm like, you know, these are just so fucking different. I mean, it's just like, it's not even like, I can't even, know, it, it was frustrating because I can't explain. And this is one of the things that's frustrating as a writer and photographer is when you see something, you feel like you can't do justice to it. In your words or photos, yeah, and you know, and there's my limitations there, but there's also the fact that the audience, who is primarily front row, who primarily has you know, PhDs and grad MFAs and all those things, are so removed from what I'm trying to explain or what I'm trying to show that they are incapable of understanding it, and so it's a little bit of my failure, and it's a little bit of you know, I I'm, I, I kind of got a task I'm not sure I can ever accomplish. Um, I mean, the worldview difference between somebody who you know has a PhD in comparative literature from Princeton, and it's, it's not making a lot of money, you know, because they're adjuncting from here to here. And somebody who is also not making a lot of money because, you know, or somebody who's making a little bit of money because they have their own lawn care business, right? <laughs> like, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, a Mexican-American immigrant who, who started a lawn care business and now has eight employees and is maybe making 150000 a year. You know, maybe three times when an adjunct with a comparative literature PhD is doing, but they're very like I, I will still argue that, in ma- in many ways, the comparative literature PhD has more privilege, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, because that's what because you're part of a club, and that, the educated club is the ones who run this country, and they kind of set the agenda, both culturally and and and, and policy wise. So, um, you know, it's it's it, not, that that hasn't gone over very well because I think I mean again, it's very hard. It's a very hard sell because there really are, you know, there's adjuncts out there who have PhDs from places who are mm-hmm. struggling, and I, I really feel bad for them, and I wish they weren't struggling, and I wish it was different. And it's hard to say to them, hey, you know, I think, you know, I, I'm not trying to diminish your struggles, but, you know, in, as a class of people, you know, you, there's a lot of privilege here because you you have the right cultural views. You have the right yeah. knowledge set, and, and you can always... You have a lot more flexibility in what you can do, or what you could have done in your career, to go into careers that are kind of, um, you know, prove, uh, are, are sacred or are approved by the kind of powerful, you know, um, yeah. versus kind of, you know, being somebody who's just toils away fixing lawns, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. and, and and focusing on kind of and always living in the same neighborhood for their entire life.
0: Yeah, and that's what I find most helpful about the front row back row framework. That it's like it's ultimately about your kind of cultural, almost metaphysical orientation towards life, it's reality, you know? And like when I was reading your book, it made me think back to when I was an undergrad, like I went on a service trip to Brazil and a lot of my classmates were, you know, like very conventionally progressive and like, you know, said all the right, used all the right kind of language, all the right concepts. And when we were there, like, you know, we're in a very kind of impoverished neighborhood. And the main focal points of the neighborhood were the churches. Um, I, and we participated in one of the religious services. And the way that my classmates were acting, like, it was really interesting because on one hand, they looked at it um, in a kind of condescending way. Like, oh, look how cute. Like, they still have- Exactly,
1: it's very cute. People, they still do this. <laughs> or
0: they, or it's like- pity because like if it's like the ritualistic stuff it's like oh very cute but then when it comes to like certain doctrines beliefs they're like oh my god they still believe that they haven't evolved yet that's so sad if only you know one day yeah there
1: is there it's very much uh, it's very much to me the again i I always said we're divided you know it's about meaning Mm -hmm. um and it's how you find your meaning and it's what you value what what you view as a sacred meaning what you view as profane meaning like the problem with the educated class or they what we have in my in my issue with the meritocracy, the educated meritocracy now is they only really allow one axis of meaning, and that's resume building. And it that's claims to of,
0: be neutral though, that's the thing.
1: Like it's so right.
0: dramatic while claiming to be like, oh, it's totally neutral, free of but,
1: but and there's no greater example of of that than faith. And you know, at a personal level, I've probably I've evolved most on that issue. I used to be, you know, I've never made, uh, you know, look. I've always, I was always a smart-ass kid who kind of mocked religion, yeah. you know. Um, I never really made fun of people who are religious because that's just not who I am. Um, I don't generally make fun of people, but, you know, I, I did pity pity them and look down on it. Um, and, you know, again, spending six years and, you know, when you want people to have a view or expect people to have a view and they don't have it, you got to start questioning you. Am I the one? who's wrong, you know, and I, I expected them to be atheists. I expected them to, 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 to be, you know, if anybody's been dealt a, you know, the, who, who should see how ruthless the world is, it's, it's, it's the people I was hanging out with. And in fact, they were, they were much more, they had much more, they were the most religious people I've ever met in my life. Um, and I had to start questioning what, what I, how I think about faith. And I think you're exactly right. You know, the, the educated class, the front row really looked at religion at best in a condescending way. Oh, that's really cute. That you know, that's a utilitarian thing. You need that. You know, it's kind of like the, the opiate of the masses, oh, that's good for you. It'll dull your dull your pain. Um, they don't ever view it as anything, you know, or or outright scorn. I mean, you know, you just look at perfect example or like the new atheists are the worst example of that. Um, they don't ever look at it as anything that is as, you know, at an epistemological or metaphysical level is, is as valid as as their framework is and i actually think it is as valid i mean it's you know i'm i I think you know um i think many cases the highly educated are the people who who are living a sheltered life that's basically not allowing them to see the validity of faith and we're the ones who you know they we 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 tend to say well it's the religious people who live in this very provincial life and they're not they don't have access to the books we have, the access to the experiences we have, to see you know, the, that rationality and cold and, and, and positivism is a way, utilitarian positivism is a way to go. They're the ones who have, whereas I think it's actually the opposite. We're the ones who, with our nose always in books and our kind of limited social circle and our and limited so experience set, are, are cut off from the evidence uh of the power of faith uh and the validity of it so you know i think we got it, we got it all backwards and that's that's the biggest change for me intellectually and, and personally um and so you know I, I the way i see how i see faith talked about and how i see religion talked about in academics um you know again it's it's, it's, it's there are places i get it right like you know you can go to you can go to you know Notre dame and hear theologians who get it right Um, but you know you go to harvard and and princeton and cornell and you know i mean it's it's just you know (laughs) it's kind of like a very very like religions are this thing you put under a microscope to study um you know and at best at best you know
0: and it comes out like i'm thinking about um i think it was maybe last month cornell west resigned from harvard div school because like the horrible treatment that he received as a faculty member, and he was saying that like it's so clear that this school no longer prioritizes like actual spiritual values. Like now, as a professor, he's just treated as just a part of the machine, you know. So it's not just I don't know. Do You see how this kind of shift towards this technocratic worldview really does dehumanize people and like.
1: We become- yeah, I mean, I mean, the the, the you know this tech, the, you know the technocratic worldview is I mean, again i think you know it's it, it besides quote i think being wrong and soulless i actually think it's extraordinarily dangerous i mean one of the my quips has always been is you know um um you know kind of technocratic you know basically basically cold technocrats bureaucrats playing sim nation or sim world mm-hmm. with with quote science as their you know, guiding principle generally ends in bad places. It ends in eugenics. <laughs> you know what I mean, I mean it, it ends in, you know, it ends in, you know, uh, elitism. It ends in scientific racism. It ends in these places that aren't good. Um, you know, if you just, quote, follow the data without having a moral structure behind it. Same thing with capitalism. You know, if you have free markets without kind of a moral code behind it to kind of uh, to check the excesses, um, that also leads in a really bad way. And I think what we're seeing here in terms of like, you know, so much of what the problems we see now, look, we're an extraordinarily wealthy country. We have a lot of stuff, and yet people are unhappy. Um, we're extraordinarily politically polarized. And I, I think that lack of faith as kind of um kind of a, a giving people a, a role, giving people a community, giving, you know, giving people a, a place in the universe is when you have that gone bad things fill the void um yeah. and bad other forms of meaning and i think that's where we are now i think people are very you know this kind of atomized individuality is really 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 hurts really really is what leads to a lot of the unhappiness you see out there you know i mean i before this summer i spent um to kind of pivot slightly differently this summer i spent like you know um, over the over the last two years, I spent basically three months in working class Muslim neighborhoods overseas, one in um, Jakarta and the other in Istanbul, um, where religion was, you know, was very much part of the framework. It was just part of the fabric of the culture. And to spend, you know, two months in a place like that and then come back to the U.S. is really jarring, um, you know. You go from a place where there's a natural, organized community. People are, you know, despite the the poverty levels, um, the income difference are happy or content as a way I, you know, you know. Um, and then you come to the US where you know, there's a there's a there's individuality that's kind of like, you know, you just you see people getting their freak flag on, which is great. I mean, good for them. But it's like but also just kind of it just really you see a lot of depressed people, a lot of depression, a lot of loneliness. Um, I mean, there is that in Jakarta, there is that in Turkey, but not to the degree there is that here. And it's just, it's just, it's just kind of shocking to come back and see it, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I I really think that so many of our problems, and I don't want to be that person who who looks at, what says one thing, so many of our problems come from a lack of faith. You know, know, uh, we haven't found a way to replace religion. I think secularism really thought, like, we didn't need religion. At a very pragmatic level, and it's pretty clear we need it. Um, and what's what's filling the void is not pretty.
0: And what I'm wondering is, like, with all the the kind of social justice um, discourse that I'm hearing today, places a lot of emphasis on you know on structures on these, I guess we could say, these measurable factors, which obviously play a role in exacerbating poverty and other social issues. But then I asked people like, okay, so we we um, correct these structures, great. But then what do we do with the problem of meaning, the sense of existential emptiness and loneliness? Like, why is it that those who are most vocal right now um, talking about social justice issues are ascribing to this technocratic framework that doesn't make room for cultural capital and questions about like ultimate meaning in life?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the kind of um we we fill the void of lack of religion with kind of politics in some senses and i look i'm all for social justice it's great you know I'm, i i think you know a lot of the, a lot of the stated goals are, are admirable um but but it's but they're, again they're not doing they're they're a they're they're in many ways are just symbolic gestures people make to, to kind of ignore the bigger issues mm-hmm. um and so i i am cynical that way but also i mean the whole, you know, finding meaning by politics doesn't really, you know, there's no regulation there. There's you know, the classic role of re- religion is it's, it's regulatory. It provides people with a guardrails in life. It provides people with a, and then there's also metaphysical. I mean, there's the, the frame, the, the answers to the big questions, a place in the universe, the meaning, and it just doesn't do that either. So it fails in those, in those levels. And I think, you know, again, this, you know, the technocratic way of looking at the world You know, I think there's a, I forget who, which, which, um, which famous physicist basically said, you know, um, you know, particle physics would be much harder if, um, if atoms had feelings, you Mm -hmm. know, and, you know, that's the biggest problem is you can't, you know, I'm a former scientist, you can't do social science. And the technocrats are playing, you know, I, I see them online and Twitter, you know, they just don't get it. They don't get how people operate they don't get that you know to put it in the cold their cold language they don't understand people's utility functions um you know they don't understand how people work um and you can look at the covid policy as a way as an example of that people need to be around people I and mean, that was a whole kind of lesson of my mcdonald's thing that people form community in mcdonald's because people want community that bad that they'll even do it in mcdonald's people need community and you know to deny people community is on paper Okay, that's how we stop COVID in the room. But there's huge, huge costs for that. You, you know, you deny people. And so the technocrats don't understand people. They don't understand how people operate. And so both they have these models, those models don't account for communities for so, how people work, you know?
0: Yeah, but then the other piece of this is that like so much of the way that, you know, people are approaching these social issues is wrapped up in a very individualistic kind of, narrative of like, ultimately of like self-expression authenticity, which is kind of the child of unfettered capitalism. You know, it's this idea that I pursue my own goals without regard for some other ideal or for other people. And it's just interesting that, you know, we're talking about trying to correct these social ills while furthering this individualistic worldview that just makes us even more lonely. And ultimately makes us more vulnerable to oppression
1: from those in power, you know? Yeah, I mean, the again, the, the, this idea that, you know, just do what you want to do because it feels good in every direction. I mean, it's really, again, it's, it's not working for a lot, of, for for majority of people. A lot of people, are, I mean, it works for, you know, a minority who really get, you know, their kicks out of being very, very, very different but you know people need to feel feel, you know i always the the thing i always say is that the the, you know the bumper sticker lesson of my work was people need need to feel a valued member of something larger than self
0: yeah yeah
1: and um you know that's just that's just
0: something that's not we need to be rooted in something that yep precedes us that's just me that's
1: correct yeah that's right
0: Mm. But so then, other than faith, you talk a lot about the role of family and and place, like the local kind of community, and it it makes me think about, um, so like the philosopher Charles Taylor talks a lot about what he calls, I guess, like the enchanted worldview that, you know, reigned when religions played a a central role in public life, and then, you know, after the Enlightenment, more of this dis, um, this disenchanted worldview this disincarnated worldview and like the physical mundane everyday realities are no longer charged with some kind of deeper meaning it's just like this positivistic what you see is what you get and i'm like i'm curious to understand more about how these more manual forms of work more um, carnal ties like family like local community now, lose value in this kind of excarnated carnated technocratic worldview. And like I'm seeing, like I see a lot of younger um, working class inner city uh, young people who are being pushed into these academic university mm-hmm. tracks without being told that there's the option to do, you know, some kind of tr- vocational trade, you know. And I just wonder, like, how much is that contributing? To these problems, the fact that we're not valuing these other forms of um, these other cultural expressions.
1: The way you framed it was—I mean, I, I haven't heard of the philosopher you were talking about, but um, I really like the way you you talked about it because it's very—it's always nice to hear someone who uses better words than I've used <laughs> to explain what what I was trying to get at. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I always say that we've stripped a lot of kind of what I call what I call non credential forms of meaning—things that are gift, family. Place, um, you know, um, nation, things that are kind of gifted to you at birth, um, natural communities, we strip them of of their value, and we strip them of basically, um, we've turned them banal. They're very banal things, and the way you talked about it as, you know, they're no, they're no longer magical in some sense. They're no longer filled with kind of. That's a very good way. And and I, thinking back, it's really interesting. Um, I'm going to have to go look at that look that up because I mean. That puts into, you know, I've always said that one of the frustrations of, uh, I'm a photographer, and one of the frustrations of photographing poverty, um, or what I saw was, you know, the the way most people photograph it is turn it into into drama. Mm -hmm. You know, harsh black and white, um, they find the the dramatic setting, but poverty is very banal. Like there's a lot of banality there, Um, and it's, it's trying to show that. And I think that gets at what you're saying, which is we have taken away the kind of magic of place, the magic of family, the kind of, and what I would argue is that people are fighting that. People naturally fight that. And they do that by creating art, natural art. They do that by creating their families and and, and, and still imbuing them with kind of a, a special, I mean, that's kind of the whole, That's that's the choice of the idea of dignity. That's what I'm getting at is that. They still try. And, and that's a good way of thinking of how people try to maintain dignity is trying to turn those kind of forms of meaning that are the, the technocrats of value. They're fighting to buttress them and say, no, they, they still have value, not just, you know, utilitarian value, but they have magical value. They have, they have um, aesthetic value. They have, you know, they have like, you know, <laughs> uh, non you can't quantify value, you know, and so. That's certainly true when, when, you know, what I tried, when, when I first got to the Bronx, what I tried to document was how amongst this banality, there's still a beauty. Like they were take, take people were taking very kind of literally junk and creating art out of it um, to uplift themselves, uplift the life and, 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 and turn that place into something that still mattered, turn their family into something that still mattered. And so you see that in terms like, you know, pigeon keepers, the bike clubs, the, the, the even the um, graffiti art and all sorts of things and so I've always had a special special awareness of that because I do think people are fighting that but yeah I mean I think you know you know the t- story I always tell that uh, I think is in the book um, is a as a young young woman who was nineteen who you know was in a McDonald's I met her and she was East LA Mexican American girl um, woman and. Um, you know, she's talking about how she's going to East, East LA Community College, which I'm sure is a good school. Um, but she wished she could go someplace else. She wished she could go to New York, uh, where I was from, or what have you. And, and and I asked her why she couldn't. She said, well, I'm, I'm my mother's translator. Like, you know, yeah. I need to be there for my mother. And the question is, is like, I think, you know, a technocrat would say, oh, we got to fix that. We have to find a way to go get her to New York. <laughs> yeah, you know, and well, hmm, I don't know, man, you know, is it, it, her decision to stay and be with her mother. Why, why is that viewed as a problem we have to solve? you know and I think I think um, one of my one of my big frustrations and I, I kind of addressed it when I, I reviewed a book that was similar to mine but very different in mean, many ways. tight wrote by Nick Kristof, who I guess is run, in New York Times up who's running now for like I guess New York, Oregon governor. And my frustration was is he can he, he sees the problems I saw. Which is admirable. I'm glad he saw them. But he his solution is more education, more education. We got to get that, you know, black inner city kid into Harvard. We got to get them in education. He could only envision that he wants successes, people like him. He, we need to turn everybody into somebody like him. We need to take take all these kids. I'm like no, people are different, you know. So yeah. we got to provide them with trade skills. Yes, like so why are we
0: assuming them? everyone wants that kind of career path? And also, yeah, like, I mean, you and, have a society with people who are only engineers or economists, you know?
1: Yeah, and you know, I mean, or or, you know, MFAs with lots of debt, you know, or or, or film majors, you know. I mean, like they're we we need to provide people, and yes, we have trade schools, but we need to make people, but anybody who tells you there's not a stigma attached to making the decision yeah, that we have to remove that stigma where people are like, okay, that's admirable. You do that. You know, let's, let's not funnel everybody into, into the IVs as, as their, as their dream. You know, there's a lot of other forms of success um, that, you know, and uh, in many ways, I think we, you know, you know, again, going back to the original beginning of the conversation, we're the weird ones. Why are we trying to turn everybody into us? <laughs> yeah
0: have you ever seen the movie ladybird no it was like three four years ago but this is exactly it it's like it's this girl from sacramento who you know is like working up in the lower middle class but like hates sacramento because of how boring it is she hates her parents she hates her life she wants to move to new york and have like this you know fabulous glamorous lifestyle And the whole plot is like this tension between everything that's been given to her, which she perceives as mundane and just like boring, and this kind of ideal life she has envisioned for herself in New York. And eventually comes to realize like, wait, this is kind of vapid, you know? But I think that represents so many young people who are like, they're conditioned to dream of this kind of life when really there is that magic or that enchantment hidden within what has been given. It's like, yeah, you kind of have to work to discover it, but it's there if we look.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, and again, I'm not saying you can't mesh the two. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, you, you can stay, you can stay in, you can stay in, you know, Portsmouth, Ohio, and, and still, you know, vague, still, experience literature, still, you know, especially nowadays, you still, you know, um, aspire, go, still travel um you know still see the world um but you know there's a way to have quote both of those those experiences but instead what we do is we intellectually you know it's kind of what Patrick canine and I were talking about mm. like um i think th- it, this is his term i've stole which is we intellectually strip mine the country yeah like you know we we, we find the best and brightest you know, etc and we just take them out of their, we Pull them out and throw them into, you know, D.C. or New York or or San Francisco or or, or you know, yes, the, or or Cleveland, but but only one or two neighborhoods in Cleveland. You know, what I mean, like you know, or Nashville, one neighborhood in Nashville, or you know, Tampa, one neighborhood in Tampa. You know, it's like we we just like we have this kind of fast track to 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 the front row, which is which is very same no matter where it is.
0: The other thing that I was thinking about just like looking at my own experience, I grew up in a very suburban kind of upper middle class neighborhood. And I was entrenched in this very front row worldview, you know, everything that I was taught was like, you know, ultimately very technocratic. And I found interesting when reading Dignity that most of the areas you visited were either like more rural, more urban, inner city, and you see that these different kinds of environments breed these different ethoses or these different worldviews. So, like I'm interested, what can you say about how the kind of space or neighborhood you in fosters a kind of mindset or way of seeing things?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think I I think we make too much of the rural urban um, thing because I think, you know, as you pointed out. I, you know so many people live in suburbs now that's kind of that kind of i don't even know how to define rural and urban you know i mean because there's that vast middle i mean you know houston is like 90 percent suburbs you know i mean it's like you know and um la is i i think la i'm like you know you go I'm, i'm not sure what suburbs is and what city is these days but you know suburbs is where i think the majority of people live these days um and um I, I would i tend to i tend to throw suburbs in t- into the kind of rural camp i think they're they have more of a rural mentality i think um i think you know i think they the they, they um in some senses, they have the worst of both worlds or the best of both worlds depending on how how you project it um but you know i think there's a there's a strong um you know there's a strong kind of um there's a I personally find what I, I personally find suburbs to be extraordinarily frustrating at a, at a kind of aesthetic level yeah. in the sense that it's really hard to love that place to find the the magic in a suburb um, because it, in many cases, the technocrats have one and the suburbs I know are extro- over-engineered, yeah. almost impossible. Like, you know, it's like, you know, I prefer the suburbs that were libertarians or control. And like, you, you know, you, you don't have nine crosswalks and 15 berms and 37, you know, yeah. turn lights where it just kind of, it just feels like you're living in a corporate housing, you know, like um, it's just, you know, I think of Northern Maryland or, or you know, or, uh, I think of like Southern Maryland, Northern DC area as kind of, it's just this place that's extraordinary over-engineered to the point of being kind of Painful and depressing and oppressive. Um, I don't have a lot of love for the suburbs. I, again, I know it's you know it's it's where I think a lot, a lot of people live, and I think it's it, it does shape you. I mean, you can't those things can't shape can't not shape your experiences as well as also how you interact in communities. Like this, is, are they natural forms? Are they natural community builders or not? Um, but yeah, I didn't spend a lot of time in suburbs because um, you know I was trying to contrast kind of the, the, what I see the two extremes.
0: Yeah, because what I like when I look back at my experience growing up, like the way that the houses are set up, it's like <laughs> I think the architectural realization of this atomized kind of worldview, because you know, you have the option to interact with the people around you, but it's very um, it's just like very guarded, very, you know, like you have to cross this boundary intentionally. And then there's, like, certain standards and propriety that you have to consider. Whereas, you know, when I ended up living in uh, a city for my undergrad, um, yeah, there's loneliness, yeah, there's atomization, but it's different because, like, you're constantly surrounded by people. You're you're inevitably going to be interacting. And also, like, you're more free to express, uh, for, like, culture can be more freely expressed. Whereas, like when you're in your home, it's in suburbia. It's just so isolated, or like in okay. a more rural environment. At least there's, I think you're more in touch with the land. So there's this sense that, in those other kinds of environments, it's very clear that something else is given to you. There's something else beyond you. Whereas in suburbia, everything's just like very man-made, very.
1: You know. that's actually a be- that's a much better answer than i give them so i'm going to steal it <laughs> um but i mean that that's very much that is the case that's exactly right and i think it's you know i used to quip that um and i'm sure people other people have mentioned this I, i'll drive through suburb suburban neighborhoods where it's 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 a row of ranch houses without a ranch i mean a ranch house is supposed to have a ranch i mean it's designed to have a ranch around it right <laughs> i mean that's why it's designed the way it is <laughs> and yet they're all next to each other like you know like like 15 feet from each other but there is a cold kind of like i know this cold sterileness to them um you know and again i'm sure there's lots of community in them like you don't know, a, it's like me finding community in mcdonald's i'm sure they happen like you know at the stewart shop here in upstate new york that's where you know or or at, at the at the mall or at the walmart parking lot or what what have you but um or at the starbucks you know um or or at the uh, strip mall but um you know you get you it, it, I, I the way i'd frame it is um suburbs are the lead are, are the neighborhood that's least conducive to forming community yeah like, i mean you can do it but, yeah if you try really hard but, but you you gotta fight it like it's kind of like the winds are blowing against way. you yeah
0: mm. so one last thing i'll ask before we go what would you say was the most surprising thing that you learned while traveling before writing Dignity?
1: Hmm. Um, I, you know, Again, I think, well, I mean, the two obvious ones are the communities in McDonald's, you know, like the, just the, mm-hmm. the, the, how, how essential McDonald's spaces are, you know, a place that's built to be transactional, you know, you, brutally capitalistic transactional, actually has communities in them like you know that's how much people want community that was kind of the lesson of that and then I mean to me the other one was faith it's just the the, how essential faith is and those are the two the quip I used to say is I kind of walked into this project kind of a um, uh, you know uh, vegetarian atheist and I kind of walked out you know (laughs) a big mac (laughs) catholic so you know (laughs) um so i mean those those are the two obvious um things um uh, on the more mun- on the mon- more mundane thing is this kind of um i think um or less it's like how friendly people are i mean it's just you know I, I kind of you know if you're a stranger and you're driving 400 000 miles over six years around the country just just talking to people i mean people are people are extraordinarily friendly um and um you know, people want to tell you their story, and you know everybody who looks at what I. There's some people have asked me what I did. Was it hard? And like, no, I mean it's hard, not hard to collect stories. People, if you're if you have good intentions, people will tell you their lives. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard. The opposite actually was a the case. There are times when I had to look, man, I, I just you know I'm, I'm I'm sitting at the Applebee's at 11:30, and you know people are people won't people are talking at me, and it's really wonderful and that's sweet. I was like, I gotta go sleep, man. You know, <laughs> like so it's, it's it's actually not hard to it's not hard to collect people's story. People want to talk. People want to talk. Um, and people are friendly and people want to talk.
0: Awesome. Well, Chris Arnati, thank you for joining us. And you can pick up his book, Dignity, and any uh, social media plugs, Chris? Uh,
1: I, I guess I'm on Twitter now and then. Um, you know, so, um, I, and I just, I just started a sub stack, um, which I haven't posted anything to. I just started the the framework, built the framework, where I'm going to basically um, do do some posting now. It's, my substack will be free; I'm not going to charge. Um, where I'll be posting on my future travels and and various thoughts I have, um, but uh, but that's 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 to come in the in the future. So
0: awesome! Well, thank you for listening to
1: practice. Uh, thank you for having me so much. I really appreciate it, and thank I really appreciate. I, I really like your answer on, on suburbs. I'm going to have to think about it more.
0: Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, so thank you for listening and we hope you've been sufficiently scandalized.